Hello, and welcome to One Real Good Thing, where we dive into one thing you can do today to propel your life in a healthy direction. I'm Ellie Krieger, and my guest today is Chef Chris Scott, the adored finalist on season 15 of Bravo's Top Chef. Chef Scott's signature soul food with a twist is inspired by his grandmother's Southern flavors and the German and Dutch cuisine of the Amish community he grew up in. The roots of his food culture is a testament to how much deliciousness can come from the most humble ingredients. With so many of us trying to stretch our own grocery dollar these days, Chef Scott is here today to enlighten us about Amish soul food and help us see how tapping into tradition can help us find affordable, healthy meal inspiration at home. Chef Chris Scott, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk about this with you. I've, I'm so enthusiastic about all of your work, and, and I'm just thrilled that you're here. So thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. So my I, pleasure. Wanted to, I wanted to start off by telling you a story that I never told you. And also to tell the listeners this. So my husband and I, I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and we decide to go for a big, long walk. And we go, we walk up north, up to Harlem, and I heard about this great biscuit store, this biscuit shop, uh, Butterfunk Biscuit. And so we go up there, and we have a nice long walk. We have lunch there. And I had the best, one of the best biscuits of my entire life. I was so into it. It was fabulous. (laughs) I had no idea who was behind it, honestly. And guess what? I'm talking to him right now. Right, right. Yeah. So it turned, that's your shop. So anyone who loves biscuits, which better be pretty much everyone who's listening right now, check out Butterfunk Biscuit. Um, It's Chris Scott's, one of his places. Um, But we have so much more to talk about because you also have this fabulous book called Homage. Yeah. Recipes and Stories. From an Amish soul food kitchen. Something else, ain't it? <laughs> it really, it truly is. And so, I mean, I have to, I want to just say how much I love this book. It is so filled with, I, I can feel the history. I learned so much. Who I had never heard of Amish soul food. I think most of us have, have a pretty yeah. limited notion of what soul food is. So first of all, my mind's blown open by that. So right. thank you for that. Yeah. And also it's so much more than recipes. It's like a real collection of stories and inspirations of where these recipes are from and you feel the roots and then you want to make the food. So thank you for all of that. Yeah. Tell us what is Amish soul food? You know, the catchphrase Amish soul food is, is just that it, it's, it's a catchphrase. It sort of happened back in the day when I was on top show and they, and, and they really want to corner you into having a title of what type of food do you do? And I would always say, you know, I don't know. It's, it's this, it's that it's Southern, but it's not, it's a little bit of, of whatever. And then I guess out of frustration, I was just basically like, look, it's Amish soul food. All right. You know, will that shut you up finally? Brilliant. (laughs) 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 So that's kind of been, you know, the, the catchphrase since 2017, but, but, what it really is, is that, is that a lot of people think that soul food is just one big thing of a mix of like these highlighted dishes, you know, to me and, 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 and to many people, soul food is a regional thing. You know, if you start, let's say down in the, like, like around here, 
you know, you have the German, the Dutch, and the Amish uh, settlers, you know. So after emancipation, my people were from Virginia, and they worked their way north to, to Pennsylvania, where these people already were. By the time that I was born, this is the food that I knew. But if you go down further south to Virginia, you have Tidewater people. So you have more of a seafood influence in that food. <laughs> Keep on going further south. Now you're in Gullah Geechee, right? More okra, more rice culture, more African roots. Keep on going further south. Now you're sort of like in that Florida panhandle, more Cajun, more Creole. Move western, you know, now you're sort of getting into like that Delta region. There's there's some influences of barbecue. So it all depends on where you are. You know, like everyone does fried chicken, yes. But it, but but it's so much more and so much deeper than that. You know, so this Amish soul food that I speak of is a mix of German, Dutch, and Southern. And so you were raised in this like pencil of outside Pennsylvania in the sort of yes. Amish country, I guess I grew yep. up calling yep. it. <laughs> from yeah, New yeah. York. Yeah. So it is really fascinating because soul food is not a monolith. It's not just one thing. And I think we can, first of all, I respect that you didn't want to label yourself because I think no real artists ever want to label themselves. I mean, right. look at any kind of music. We we are expressing ourselves and, and our expression of what we're doing is unique to who we are, right? Absolutely. So you, we can't just, who wants to be pigeonholed? So Right. Of all the pigeonholes you could have made for yourself, I mean, this is a really good one because it it does capture the essence of where your food's coming from, um, but without limiting it because, because it really branches out well beyond that as well because you're a classically right. trained chef. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so, and then the notion of soul food itself reflecting the people that created it, depending on where they were and what was available to them and the cultures that they were kind of steeped in and mingling with. That's so right. that makes it really cool. That makes the world interesting as far as right. I'm concerned. And it gives you a deeper sense into them, you know, because you, you look at it from the food aspect, but you get to like really look at them and their humanity. You know, let me know about these people that were Gullah Geechee. Let me learn more about them in this area. What was happening during that time, even up to modern times? You know, it really gives you a deeper sense of who these people are, you know. And then that really, to me, it makes you appreciate the cuisine so much deeper, you know. And that's yeah. really the, the oomph behind the book to, as well. Yeah. And you're really doing such beautiful storytelling in the side notes and the, the side stories and the head notes. Yeah. It's really telling a story and painting a picture in such right. a, an elaborate way. Like you really do get a sense of it. Um, one of the things when I was reading your book, I was trying to think like, what should the one thing be that I really was gleaning from this book? And I really think when you get to the heart of what these people were going through, what were the lives like? Mm -hmm. It relates very much back to this one real good thing that we're looking at today, which is to tap into tradition for affordable, healthy meal inspiration. And right. that's something I think most people can really relate to now. Like we're food prices are high almost everyone I know is, is like kind of shocked at their grocery bill and yeah. trying to say like, Whoa, I got to rein this in. How can I get the biggest bang for my buck and so on, but still eat well. 
still eat nutritiously. And what a better place to learn that than looking back because your ancestors, your grandma, your the stories you tell in this book, what people are doing are not only surviving, but thriving and making yeah. amazing meals with like kind of bare minimum means as far as I could tell. Exactly. You know, like a, a, a classic or a regular meal that was brought into my home coming up would always be some type of vegetable stew. You know, if we were lucky, then maybe you might have had like some bone to enrich that broth or maybe some meat to go into it. But it was always some form of vegetable stew that was poured over top of day old cornbread, you know, and almost everywhere that I go in all of these regions, that one dish is is like it unifies us because I can talk to someone from the north, the south, the east, the west, whatever. And that stew over that bread seems to be a common thread that we all have. You know, yeah. it's not about the fried chicken or the ribs or the biscuits or, or any of that, which it still plays a very deep part. <laughs> but a lot of all that really came out on Sundays or, you know, when special things were happening for graduations, for weddings, for, you know, for the holidays, you know, but, but an everyday meal were the things that we grew. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. And then interesting that you say that because I think about also in Italy, like the cucina povera, they, they call it like the, yeah. the meals that came from like the poor regions is exactly that. It's like the, um, the stale bread and then you pour the tomato sauce and the pasta over it or whatever yeah. and the vegetables yeah. and that's delicious. And the thing is, is that, oh, this isn't just, oh, wah, wah, we have to have this. This is delicious food. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. this is the food that many people wind up saying, "Oh, you know what? This is the food that gives me comfort. This is the food that brings me back to my grandma's kitchen. This is the food that I crave when I'm right. feeling like I need a hug or something." Right. right. You know, so many people will always look at this type of food as if it's beneath. You know, as if it's like some peasant food. Like even even coming up in 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 the industry now, a lot of people would always mock this type of cuisine call it staff meal or, or whatever, but there's so much beauty knowing how to create a flavorful stock. There's so much deep technique in knowing how to braise, sear, blanch, poach your vegetables that you grew. And when I say vegetable stew, I'm not talking about a rolling boil of beans and carrots and whatever, just boiled to death. I mean, there was real intricate work done in this, you know, to where you could, like you said, it's delicious because you're tasting that vibrancy of that bounty, you know, that was grown right then and there on your land. You know everything about it. The one thing about Nana is that I think I even talk about it in the book is that she would even have a technique when blanching her string beans. She would say, if you're going to snip it, snip it on the one end, not on the both, because the hot water works its way into the bean. And now the shelf life of the bean is going to be less. If you just snip the one end, then the water won't have that chance to get in. You're blanching the outside. It's vibrant. It's green. It's flavorful. And, and it will last two days rather than just one. You know, so she was thoughtful 
in the way that she even prepared the food for us. And a lot of people were back then. It's so much more than just peasant food. It's so much more than just staff meal. You know, yeah. these are thought out dishes. Yeah, absolutely. And so giving credit where credit is due, really. Yeah. And and I think even if, you know, you can't grow your own food today, I mean, that's a whole job in itself, right? I Correct. mean, even just looking towards some of these foods. So I just, as a <laughs> dietitian, I know there are certain foods that, that are going to give you the most nutritional bang for your buck. And a lot of them are in your in your book. So yeah. be, beans, oats, carrots, cabbage, potatoes. These are like kind of like long life vegetables, right? Exactly. Carrots, cabbage, potatoes, um, milk as well, eggs, seasonal right. vegetables. So mm -hmm. right now going out and buying corn, you're going to get a great deal because there's a bumper crop and you can buy a lot of it for not a lot. And then knowing what to do with those seasonal vegetables. So whether you're growing it yourself or you're just you know, taking advantage of that seasonality, yeah. you're going to be getting, you know, great value. Um, right. And so just highlighting some of the recipes in your book that actually look, you know, that use some of these, of course, there are plenty. And one that really struck me because I love oats and I love beans is this red bean porridge mm -hmm. that you say, um, this is a dish to prepare when you ain't got nothing in the pantry, but you got lots of mouths to feed. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, and you remember enjoying it plenty of times as a child, not realizing that you were on the verge of being on the street. Like these were tough times, but your belly was full. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there, there was a time even in the production of the book when I was because the photographer for the book, brilliant photographer. Um, and in it, I was talking to her about was there a way to sort of. Uh, dampen the color or have them not so vibrant because I wanted the hard foods section of the book to also, you know, to be able to reflect that, you know, so that the whole book is vibrant and colorful and, you know, shows off all, all that it does. But then you get to the, the hard foods part and it's a little bit drab. It's a little bit sad it's a little bit of all these emotions that my parents were were feeling you know we had no idea that we were about to get our lights cut off we had no idea you know but they made it happen with this flavorful food breaking down the, the misconceptions that soul food is unhealthy True. when you have all of these things that are super healthy and stick to your ribs and can keep you full you know, for days at a time and inexpensive. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I have to make this part sound so good to me. It oh, sounds so savory with garlic and onion and beans. And you have a couple of chicken livers in there, which right. is probably optional. You can make it vegetarian, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do like you have chicken livers and you have chicken broth and you and another thing besides these ingredients that I mentioned about giving so much nutrition and so much heartiness and satisfaction and flavor opportunity um, with, with, while being very affordable. The other thing is sort of like taking advantage of the whole, like not wasting anything. Yeah. So part of that is, yes, you're eating the chicken livers too. You're right. eating all the parts of the chicken. Right. And then also making this gorgeous, Stock. I mean, isn't that the chef's real secret in general? I'm, I'm, those are the foundations of cookery. 
no matter what you're doing, no matter what kind of background that you're coming from, there are, you know, sauce making, stock making, the, 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 the ability to be able to braise, bake, sear, you know, like all of those are foundational cooking tricks or things that, that we should know, you know. And again, I mean, you, you are correct. We don't waste any parts of the skins, of the actual vegetables, of the, 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 the core of anything. The, the bones are always used. There's another recipe in that book, Scrapple, that talks about all parts of the pig, you know, and all the way down to using all the vegetables and everything to create that flavorful broth, to be able to use the unsavory parts of a pig, the snout, the ears, the butt, the spleen, the heart, you know, things that the Amish and Black folk both used back then to prepare their scrap. I mean, that is case in point, one of the best, best examples of not throwing away anything. I always said, even before the book came out, why do the French get to have all the fun when it comes to charcuterie? When the Amish folk and the Black folk were doing that with scrapple, with sauce, with head cheese, all of that. Absolutely. So credit where credit is due, and it just hasn't been recognized. So I think that's, right. that's one of the things I love about this book. And again, I'm going to say the name, Homage, Recipes and Stories from an Amish Soul Food Kitchen. And uh, and it really recognizes this beautiful culture, this beautiful food culture that I think um, is so unique. And then you have your own spin on it as well. And there's one um, recipe in here, the millet and summer corn, which sounds yeah. so delicious to me. And yeah. it's chicken stock, yeah. milk. It's sort of like a risotto. You said you started off making a risotto, but then you thought, hmm, let me put use millet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because... You, I, I really love all, all aspects of, of corn, you know, and to be able to bring in all kinds of grains with that as well. We started that in the summer back at Butterfunk back in the day, you know, and it was just a side dish, but it caught on so much that we pretty much had to serve it all year round, you know, and, and you're right. It, it's, it's, it's creamy. It's almost like risotto meets cream corn. Oh, you know what I mean? Sounds great. And in the summertime, it's really great because to re to to truly catch that corn broth, you know, I'm taking corn, I'm taking the cobs, you know, I'm really steeping that, you know, and then using that broth to make that that millet, and then throw corn kernels up in there as well. And in the summertime, oh man, that's jumping off. Yeah. You know? I Totally. And one of the things that's interesting about it, it, it has about four cups of milk in it for four servings. That's a meal. Like yeah. that can completely be a main course. And that's another element that I wanted to point out in terms of learning from tradition and tapping into tradition for affordable, healthy meals right. is that you say this at one point in your book that um, these things that are considered sides now, right? So the collard greens are considered a side. Maybe this risotto is considered a side, but actually your ancestors would eat them as main, the main deal, the yeah. main deal, and maybe have a little bit of chicken possibly, or some, some little bits of other elements, but the main highlight would be these quote unquote, what we consider sides. And I really think we're getting back to that, not only from a affordability point of view, but from a nutritional point of view of making vegetables, the star. Yeah. 
making them the center of the plate. And so I think it's becoming kind of fashionable actually to do that. Thank goodness, because I've been kind of advocating that for a long time from a nutritional point of view. But I think economically, I mean, sure, why not make this gorgeous risotto or corn and millet dish your main course is plenty of protein from the milk and the grain and the whole grain. And then, you know, have a great salad with that or whatever. Right. And you're good to go. Like if you could picture it's October, it's brisk air starting to, to, to come in, you know, the crispness of the leaves, you know, as with every step that you take, you come inside and you have that dish, maybe some late summer corn, you know, it's a perfect meal. I always like to kind of set the stage. You know what I mean? <laughs> you do. You do it so beautifully. And in your writing too. I mean, you really, it's so evocative. And I love that about it. I mean, not every chef, not everyone who can cook like you do can also write like you do and, and yeah, paint a yeah. picture. So bravo. Yeah. Thank you. Um, another one that I love that's also super economical. So taking the, taking that tapping into tradition here cabbage soup. And and I think that expresses also this, what I know from like my times as a kid growing up in New York City, going to Pennsylvania, Dutch country, as we call it, Amish right. country, yep. and having these big family meals. And and I, I totally loved that as a kid. I mean, anything that had food as, as part of the agenda like that course, um, was so fun. But this yeah. cabbage soup with egg noodles and smoked ham hock. I mean, I think that egg noodle aspect, the cabbage and egg noodles seems very kind of Amish to me. And then you're putting the ham hock in there. I mean, I feel like this is a great kind of mashup of this Amish soul food that you're talking about. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. I mean, totally. Because that smoked ham hock to me, to create that pot liquor, so to speak, for 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 that cabbage, to me, pot liquor is definitely one of the lifebloods that runs through this cuisine. You know. So explain to us what pot liquor is, in case people don't know. So pot liquor is essentially the the liquid that's left behind from beans, from peanuts, from vegetables. Um, it can be enhanced with smoked meats. You know, my meat of choice is always smoked ham hock, but you could do that with smoked turkey unsmoked turkey, um, a beef bone, you know, something like that. So it's it's essentially a really super flavorful stock that you can reuse again and again and again, because we would even take the pot liquor from the collard greens and drink it as 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 is and or make a soup from that. So after we ate up all the greens and and and, and the pot liquor that's left behind, you do something with that, you know, same with boiled peanuts, you know, now you have that bean liquor that's left behind, you know, makes a great soup for that. I mean, it's pot liquor is most certainly that lifeblood. But and that's where all the nutrients for the collard greens, for sure. Exactly. That's where most of the nutrients are in the end. Anyway, exactly. certainly the water soluble nutrients all yeah. wind up in the water, exactly. which is why they're called water soluble nutrients. And so right. that was potentially if you were very wealthy, you might discard that. But you're like discarding like the most valuable part in some way. Right. right. <laughs> in some parts of the South, the people in the big house would keep the collards for, for themselves and give the field workers or slaves just the broth. Again, not realizing that the most nutrient parts is that liquid, you know, 
Like people always think, you know, oh, you know, back in the day, slaves would eat biscuits and fried chicken and collard greens. Not, no, we we absolutely did not. You know, we we were eating those healthy things that were either grown by us or grown right then and there. Things that we would eat out in the fields, like like hoe cakes. You know, things that we would kind of create on our own as we needed. It, you know. Um, I mean, that's that that's the story behind that. But but that dish, that pot liquor with the smoked ham hock with the cabbage really screams at Pennsylvania Dutch, you know. And then if you want to off to the side, you have your chow chow bringing in some of that sweet and sour aspect of it. More Pennsylvania Dutch, more German, you know. So now you have that stew with a little okra chow chow with a little t- tomato chow chow just peaking it and bright, brightening it up just, just a little bit, you know, again with the cornbread, you know, for a little bit more hardiness. And the chow chow is essentially like a pickle, a pickled vegetable. Exactly. And that could be anything. Like it, in Pennsylvania Dutch culture, when you say chow chow, it's usually always corn, unless you're specific. I have a bean chow chow or a tomato. I do one with okra. You saw the ones in the book as well. The yellow tomato you know, adding different things to it. <laughs> but chow chow is, is a, is, is a wonderful thing. And this that is another, I, she, she, she would make that. I remember right before she passed away and she passed away at 96 and we kind of went through all her things and, and clearing out the house. And she had one that she made from peaches that was labeled from 1976. Now we didn't go into it or anything like we, Kind of figured that it might have been spoiled, but but just goes to show those hidden gems. Wow! Yeah, I think the um, I think the shelf life is considered to be like two years for most canned items, just for total food safety. But um, but yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, that's another way of taking advantage of local produce when it's bountiful, when it's coming out, and not wasting. So in in terms of you know saving money, making your, stretching your dollar, really looking back and tapping into these traditions. It offers so much, um, so many ways to do that and, um, and ways that are delicious. And I just love learning about your culture and where you're from and your take on it and your modern updated take, you know, your, your chef eyes on all of this and, and hand. So is there anything, um, as we're kind of wrapping up here, is there anything you wanted to add that uh, to the conversation that you want everyone you know, to know about? The one thing about the book also is that I really wanted to do Nana's food. And I really wanted to highlight that. Now, there are tweaks that I put into it as well. But if you go through it, a lot of it is very simple. Because Nana was a very simple person when she cooked. But her flavors were off the charts. And I wanted the book to be approachable. I didn't want anything to like scare people away. Like I I remember back in the day when I first got Charlie Trotter's cookbook and that's a book that was certainly meant for chefs, you know, and I didn't want this book to be too chefy or to like, I I, I really wanted to give a piece of me and my family to the world, but also bring them in and invite them in by the level of skill in, in the, in, in the cooking aspect of it. You know, like you can make these dishes, no problem. You can go to the store and find these ingredients, no problem. If Even if you grow them, that's still no problem, you know. 
So I, I, I really wanted to make it easy for the consumer or, the, or for the reader, you know, as well. Well, you definitely achieved that. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, I feel like I want to make about a hundred things in here. And it's definitely an asset in terms of, you know, being a- approachable from a skill point point of view, being enticing from a culinary point of view and being affordable from an economical right. point of view. So yeah. thank you for that. And yeah. I'm sure Nana would be very, very proud. Absolutely. I'm sure, I'm sure she I'm is. Sure. Yeah. Um, and where can we find out more about you? Uh, you can find me in Harlem most times. I'm up on 130th and Broadway. We're in the ground floor of the Jerome L. Green Science Center. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram, Chef Chris 512 um, Every now and then I'm on the Food Network, so check that out. And I'm always brewing some things. I do a, a pop-up series called the Birdman Pop-Up Series, where I travel to different parts of the country and collaborate with a lot of chef colleagues of mine. Just recently just got back from North Carolina. Uh, I'll be doing one up in, in, uh, in Raleigh. I mean, up in, in Long Island uh, next month um, with Deb Friedman. Um, but you can always find me somewhere. <laughs> awesome. And I will definitely be up on 130th Street for some more biscuits very soon. So I look forward. For I'll see Great. you there. All thank right. you so much, Chef Scott. Yeah, thank you. Take care. All right now. Thanks for joining me. I hope you've come away today with lots of new traditional ideas for healthy, affordable meals. Join me next time for another One Real Good Thing.